In our last consideration of 1 Corinthians, as we looked at chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, based on the nature of the divisions amongst the Corinthians, we asked ourselves two questions. Who are we following and what are we depending on? Who are we following and what are we depending on? Right? Are we depending on Christ alone and the things of the word alone or are we depending on people, methods, all sorts of things of ourselves? And we left off the study of that passage with Paul making this statement, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul was emphasizing the convicting and empowering power of Christ and the cross rather than the persuasive and demonstrative power of his wisdom and eloquence. So he's saying, not my wisdom, not my eloquence, but rather the power of the cross, the power of Christ, the power of God himself to make a difference. Paul is emphasizing, Paul was emphasizing in these scriptures that relying on anything other than Christ and the cross for people to be saved would actually drain the cross of its power. The cross is powerful enough, and we'll see that in just a second too. The message of the cross is powerful enough. The things of God are powerful enough. You don't have to add to it. You don't have to take away from it. You don't have to say something different. You simply declare what the word is. And it is powerful enough to have its impact on people, right? Sharing the message of the cross is to share the power of the cross. So with that thought in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 2, Verse 5. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. 
When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Three points to consider this morning, all of them anchored in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross is foolishness. In his commentary about this passage of scripture, Gordon Fee writes this, Here, Paul argues with Old Testament support. All those phrases that he's putting there in that passage are right out of the Old Testament. And so here, Paul is arguing with Old Testament support that what had always been the divine intent and thus had been foretold in the prophets, God has now accomplished through the crucifixion. The creator and sustainer of the universe has brought an end to human self-sufficiency since or as that is evidenced through human wisdom and devices. Human self-sufficiency, based on human wisdom, God has brought an end to that. No, Paul argues with his Corinthian friends, the gospel is not some new Sophia, that is the Greek word for wisdom or philosophy. This is not some new Sophia, not even a new divine Sophia, new divine wisdom. For Sophia allows for human judgments or evaluations of God's activity. When we think that we're being presented the wisdom, we say, let me analyze that. Let me see how good this is, how consistent it is. How, you know, let me evaluate it. But the gospel stands as the divine antithesis to such judgments. No mere human, in their right mind or otherwise, would ever have dreamed up God's scheme for redemption through a crucified Messiah. It is too preposterous, too humiliating for a deity. Why would people have come up with an idea that God would have to be crucified on a cross? The message of the cross is foolishness to both Jews and Gentiles. Or as Paul refers to here, Greeks. He says Greeks. The Jews demanded a sign. Something clearly supernatural. Because that is what they had in the past. Their entire history, particularly in the exodus from Egypt, was characterized by signs and wonders. But just as it was for the disobedient children of Israel in the wilderness, even when people see supernatural signs and wonders, they stumble at the message of the cross. They can see mighty things. They see all these miracles and healings and deliverance, and yet they stumble at the message of the cross. Because, just like the children of Israel, just like the Jewish people even today, when the eyes of the Jewish people 
were looking everywhere else other than Christ the way, when they were looking for a conquering Messiah who would defeat their enemies and restore them as a mighty nation, they inevitably stumbled at the message of a humiliated Messiah who died on a cross to restore them to himself. It was such a contrast that they said, oh, you know, they were looking everywhere else. And so they stumbled on what was right there. Because they said, no, it can't be this. It can't be this. The Greeks, on the other hand, were looking for wisdom. Not the wisdom of God, but a self-centered, we-know-it-all human wisdom to explain everything, even God, according to their own thinking. So they weren't looking at objective truth. They were saying, what do we think truth is? They weren't believing in Yahweh and then rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. They were intentionally ignorant of, and you know, you've heard these kinds of things, I already know what is true and don't care to learn anything about what you're saying. Right? They were intentionally ignorant of the truth claims of Christ or had rejected all of God's truth. And so here, just like the Jews, here's what's happening with the Greeks. When people's thoughts are everywhere else other than on Christ the truth. When Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. When our thoughts and our eyes are fixed on anything other than Christ the way, we stumble. But if our thoughts are fixed on anything other than Christ the truth, if we are looking at anything else other than Christ, we will inevitably find the message of the cross foolish because it is not logical according to our worldview. So people have a specific frame of reference, specific perspective, specific pers worldview in terms of how they're thinking of truth and morality and everything else. And when the message of the cross is presented, since it is not logically fitting with that worldview, they say, oh, this is foolish. Now, those who consider the message of the cross to be foolishness, both Jews and Greeks, will also find, if you're wanting to share this, they will find you're wanting to share this message of the cross with them as being pushy and insensitive to their truth. They'll say, why are you coming and telling me all this? Right? You're being pushy. You're just, you know... You're just brainwashed into what you're thinking and you know, you're, you're, what you're thinking is all wrong anyway. And so here's what happens. I'm pretty sure that none of us wake up and think to ourselves, what could I say to someone today that they would think was inconsiderate of them, inaccurate in terms of the wisdom the world has acquired, inappropriate for the 21st century, and utterly foolish? What can I do? How can I tell them something that they would react to? that they would find inappropriate, that they would say is insensitive, that they would say is foolish. Can I do that? We don't wake up in the morning and think like that. No, we want every day in every way to be seen as wise, thoughtful, and caring people. So for the most part, so that we are not offensive, so that we are not rejected, we don't talk about Christ on the cross. Instead, we talk in general 
general terms about morality, ethics, and being good. But the, what the Bible is pointing out is that there is no other message and no other means of being good except, except that we would be in God and He in us, except through the message of the cross. As Christians, the primary message we have for others is not one about health, wealth, power, and a good life on earth. The, as foolish as it may seem, the primary message we have for others should be the message of the cross. And here's the beauty of the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. You don't need to have acquired a certain amount of knowledge or a certain set of skills to share the message of the cross. It's great if you have it, but you don't need a PhD. It's wonderful if you know the Hebrew and Greek, but any language and any means of communication will do. It can be captivating if you can preach like Billy Graham, but it's fine if you feel like Moses that you're not a great speaker. It can be extremely dramatic if you can call down fire from heaven like Elijah. But you may be just as discouraged as Elijah was by the threats of Jezebel. You don't have to do or be or have all these other things. All you have to do is to share the message of the cross simply and clearly. The message of the cross that says, God so loved the world by grace that even when we were spiritually dead in our trespasses, he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, according to his purpose and plan even before the creation of the world, so that Jesus would die on a cross for the forgiveness, the remission of our sins, to pay a debt that we could never afford to pay because the wages of sin is eternal separation from God, so that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ by faith should not perish, but be saved from sin and death to enjoy eternal life with God. Oh, what a wonderful message of the cross. And you see, the message of the cross is not just the fact that it is giving us these truths, these means of refuting the claims of foolishness, but the message of the cross is that it works in us for sanctification. Even as the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who choose to reject it, it is the power of God to those who are being saved. The power of God to those who are being saved. It is the present continuous process of salvation, which we would refer to, which we refer to as sanctification. I've made this point in the recent past and we're going to come back repeatedly to this theme of sanctification by dying to self in the rest of First and Second Corinthians. So I'm not going to say much more about it this morning other than that the cross as an instrument of death is calling us to crucify our sinful nature with its passions and desires. 
The cross is calling us to crucify our expectations and our frustrations. The cross is calling us to crucify our impatience and our offenses so that we may be raised up to new life in Christ Jesus. So that we may be progressively transformed into the image of Christ. So that as perpetually maturing disciples of Christ, we never stop maturing as disciples of Christ, no matter what your age. So that as perpetually maturing disciples of Christ, we may be continuously made holy, consecrated and set apart for God, so that we may be sanctified. That's the message of the cross. That's the purpose of the cross. That's the reason why Jesus says what he does about taking up the cross and following him. And so, oh, the wonderful effect of the cross in our own lives. And then, the message of the cross is powerful. You see, finally, even as the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing and life-transforming to those who believe, Listen to that phrase there. It is the power of God to those who are being saved. The message of the cross, the idea that this is what God has accomplished on the cross, the fact that he put this plan into motion and then executed it in a flawless manner, that message is powerful to us. That message brings power to us. That relying on that truth and that message allows us to live in power. It is the power of God to those who are being saved. Even as the seeming foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Right? The foolishness of God, or what the world would call as foolishness, is wiser than human wisdom, and what the world will identify as weakness of God is stronger than human strength. God, of course, has no weakness, but what the world thinks of in that way. The world thinks that God is weak and those who believe in him are weak-minded. That's essentially what the world would think, even if they acknowledge that there is a God or there is something out there. It's a, because when the world looks at sickness and suffering, the consequence of sin, they ask, where is your God? If he is so strong, why doesn't he stop this? Or, when the world goes about on their own way, doing things just as they have done, as if nothing has changed and nothing will change, they live their own lives, they eat, they drink, they're merry, they're having all the, all the things that they feel that they can do, and they ask, where is your God? If your God is so strong, why doesn't he prove himself? Why doesn't he intervene? Why doesn't he change things? Why doesn't he deal with me directly? And, when those who crucified Jesus looked at his dying body on the cross, they asked a similar question. They said, where is your God? If you are so strong, why don't you come off that cross? But all of them missed the point. The power of God is manifest in the cross. The power of God was demonstrated in the cross. The power of God, that is the Spirit's power, was what was demonstrated. You see, the Bible tells us repeatedly, and we have looked at these scriptures, the fact is that that same power of the Holy Spirit, 
that allowed Jesus to endure the cross and then raised him from dead after the cross is the power that is at work in us. So what, what do we identify? See, the reason that we tend to miss this point is we think that the power of God manifest through the Holy Spirit is for the gifts of the Spirit. It's for the fruit of the Spirit. It's for something else. But the power of God manifest in the cross is primarily so that we would endure the cross that we need to crucify our passions and desires, and that we would be raised up to new life in Christ Jesus. That's the stated purpose and power of the cross. That's why Jesus said, this is what you have to pay attention to. And so he's asking this question, he's making these statements, he's doing all of these things, so that when the world comes at us, and it says, where's your God? What do you mean your God is strong? I don't see it. I don't feel it. You can't debate with them. Where is the philosopher? Where is the wise of this age? Where is the way in which you can argue back with that point? You can't. All you can do is continue to emphasize the simple message of the cross and pray that the Holy Spirit would touch them, would convict them, would bring them to himself. Right? So the cross was the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Our faith does not rest on human wisdom, but oh, on the power, the wonderful power of the cross. Which brings us to our point of application, and I'm getting there pretty quickly this morning because I want for us to think about a couple of things as we think about this truth of the cross and Christ and the cross, and then I want for us to spend some time this morning just worshiping the Lord and thanking him for what he has done. But when we want to respond to this word, we respond and apply the word of God that we have heard by resolving to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Except Jesus Christ and him crucified, we don't want to be boasting of or speaking anything else. Does that mean that you should not engage in a conversation with somebody about some point in the scripture about some explanation about suffering and sin, about why something is going on? Should you not have a conversation with somebody about that? No. You can definitely have those conversations. You can do that and, and speak the wisdom of God to them and so on. But don't expect that that's going to persuade them. Right? Don't expect that if I can just convince them about this point, then they'll become believers in Jesus Christ. You really have to come back to Christ and the cross only as the means of bringing change in that person's life. Nothing else will be mattering to them. And by the way, this is just a point of application that you can be thinking of, of the cross as a symbol of Christianity was not something that happened till almost the fourth century. When the church was initially founded and even before the church was founded, even before Jesus went on the cross, the cross existed. Right? The cross was there. It was there in all these cultures, and the Romans were certainly using it as a, as a horrendous way to kill people. You know? So the cross existed. But by the 4th century, when Christianity started to become institu institutionalized, the cross became the primary symbol. And the cross was what was associated with churches and Christian institutions and you have the red cross and you have all of these kinds of things where the cross became the symbol of Christianity. 
And so all over the world, almost every culture today, people are at least somewhat familiar with this image of the cross. And they will associate it with Christianity. It gives you a really good opportunity. And some people wear, wear it as jewelry. Some people have tattoos of crosses. They have no idea what it means. They have no idea why they have it. You know, maybe it was an heirloom, family heirloom that was passed on to them. Or maybe you know, they liked the, the way that that little cross looked, you know, the, you know, the uh, Coptic cross or something else. So I, I like that, so I tattooed it. I mean, they have all these things, but it's the cross. And it gives you the opportunity to say, do you know what it means? Do you know what this cross means? Do you know why the cross is put up on a building and then you identify that building as a church? Why, why, why do, you, do you know why we do that? Do you know why that happens? And it can be an opening and an opportunity to engage in a conversation. Again, use wisdom, be led of the Holy Spirit, don't do something foolish in terms of that engagement with the person. However, I'm saying to you that because this is such a common thing around us, this cross, the image of the cross, right? Use that. And you say to somebody, hey, by the way, I see, notice you're wearing a, a cross necklace. Do you know what it means? Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. Have the conversation. But as we talk about this and we talk about responding and, you know, uh, applying the word of God and saying, we will know nothing except Christ and him crucified. There are some implications for us on a week after week basis and a month after month as we study the word of God. I was reading about a preacher in Wales who made it his goal to preach the entire Bible to his congregation. He ministered at that same church for more than 40 years, preached more than a thousand sermons and still didn't cover every scripture. So here's the thing, as we study the Bible on a Sunday morning or in the women's Bible study or in our discussions or in our other corporate meetings and we take every personal opportunity to study the word of God, it may take us five to ten years to even gain a high-level summary of biblical truth. Maybe more. Just to even grasp what the Bible is talking about. And so when you think about that and you say, how does the Bible apply for every area of life and godliness? It may take you a long time to even get through some of the basics of those truths. And when you're listening to a sermon on a Sunday morning, you may be thinking, when are we going to get to the topic I really want to know about? Right? I'm interested in, and you can fill in the blank here, marriage, parenting, money management, including why, what, when, and where I should give. I'm interested in relationships, conflict resolution, service, spiritual gifts, evangelism, worship, baptism, end times, prophecy, miracles, prayer, church leadership, including whether women should be in leadership. And yeah, I'm also interested in the cross. When are we going to get to those topics? It is possible that on a Sunday morning, we may address one of those specific topics only once in three or four years. But here's the critical truth I want to emphasize this morning. If we will focus on Christ and Him crucified, which in turn enables our sinful natures to be crucified, 
if we will keep returning to Christ alone, we'll find that everything else is addressed. If we will keep the primary things the primary thing, if we will major on the major, if we will say, Lord God, it is in you and you alone that we find our meaning in Christ and Christ alone and the cross and the cross alone that we will emphasize, if we will keep that our focus, we will find that all these other things are addressed. I may not specifically reference marriage or parenting or prophecy or even the cross on a Sunday in a given message, but they're all there. D.A. Carson has this to say about the message of the cross. The message of the cross smashes the great idolatries of the ecclesiastical world. Our endless self-promotion, our love of mere professionalism, our addition to well-defined methods. Doubtless, in some circumstances, it might be wrong to criticize any one of these tendencies. Yet taken together, they weave a pattern of ministry that is so far removed from the message of the cross, the demonstrable outreach of the cross, and this New Testament description of the preacher of the cross, that we must confess in shame that we have turned to idols and must repent of our sin. Biblical preaching emphasizes the gospel and constantly elevates Christ crucified. But it also recognizes that the cross is not only our creed, it is the standard of our ministry. When we focus on anything else, and again, even as I'm making these points and I'm reading out these comments, it's not that we don't pay attention to those things. It's not that all of those things don't matter. But if Christ and the cross is not primary, if Christ and him crucified is not what we emphasize, we would have made idols of all those other things. Those things that are on the periphery become central instead of Christ being central. And so as Paul states in verse 30, it is because of him, because of God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us, Christ has become for us, Wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. It is when we focus on knowing Christ and him crucified, on living and having our being in Christ, when we are in Christ Jesus, that's when we have right standing with God. That's when we are justified. That's when we are sanctified. That's when we are ultimately glorified. I'm going to pray and close, but we're not done. We want to spend some time to worship the Lord in the light of this scripture. But Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word gives us these truths by which we can live. And Lord, your emphasis in the word of God is on Christ and him crucified. Everything that was before the cross was pointing to it and leading up to it. Everything that is after the cross is pointing back to it and say, saying to us, live now in Christ because of the cross. Crucify the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Come to the cross. Lord God, help us to take to heart this message, this 
directive, this command. Let us emphasize in every way Christ and him crucified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.